Are you struggling to balance your modern life and your faith? You're in the right place. Welcome to the Legacy Dads Podcast with Lance and Dante, offering biblical-based wisdom and that weekly dose of what truly works in men's lives. The Legacy Dads Podcast, real men, authentic faith. Here are your hosts of the Legacy Dads Podcast. They're authentic, transparent, and not always politically correct. Lance and Dante. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Legacy Dads podcast. Hey, well, first, I want to send a shout out and just say uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, this week, we debuted, uh, this podcast debuted in the top 10 um, most popular Christian podcasts. So I want to just thank you guys so much, all of you. Apparently, somebody's listening out there. Uh, <laughs> but no, I just want to thank you guys so much. Um, Totally didn't expect that, and I, I appreciate it, but we are in the uh, top 10 most popular Christian podcasts this week. So um, this episode is going to be called um, When I Was an Atheist Part 2. If you listen to part one of my podcast, it was kind of my journey from uh, being grown up, you know, growing up in religion and kind of becoming a militant atheist. And um, now I'm going to kind of talk about how I came back to faith because I'm an anomaly. A, a lot of people, when they become an atheist, they don't go back to faith. Um, so I'm kind of that anomaly that did that. So so um, I will explain this to you. And, and what I what I ended off on the part one of this podcast was essentially what I what I learned was that I wasn't so mad and didn't believe in God. It was um, my frustration with religion and kind of the modern church. And I would even add that. Uh, or would include hypocritical people who call themselves Christians. Now, you have to understand this. To the outside world, Christians get lumped all together. So if you're a Christian, you, me, Jesus, we, you know, all of us get lumped together with like the, the protesters from the Westboro Baptist Church, Creflo Dollar, and people like Ted Haggard. They just assume, oh, you're all, you're all the same. You're all Christians. So when you or I go and we invite someone to church or we go try to share the gospel message with them, we're, we're automatically contrasted with anyone bearing the name Christian who has ever hurt a person or gossiped or judged them or turned their nose up of them. You know, it's just we automatically get put into that same category, and that's really sad. Um, and and how have some churches and Christians, I want to know, just departed so far from Jesus' message and the disciples' teachings of the early church, or the, the disciples' teaching to the early church. And we kind of talked about it at the end of one, at the end of podcast one. Now, according to uh, some research done by Lifeway, um, a majority of, of Americans believe in God but do not want to be associated with the church. And, and that's really sad. And, and the reason they give, because they feel that modern churches do not accurately reflect Jesus' message. Um, Barna Group also did some research echoing this by stating that a majority of non-church-attending Americans believe the modern Christian church is known more for all the negative things they are against than the positive things. So what outsiders or people that have left the church are saying that, um, you know, things like fruit of the spirit from Galatians and Jesus' message of love is just not, rep it's, it's not being seen and represented in the modern Christian church. Now, despite the early disciples' best efforts to explain uh, the teachings of Jesus and, and to record it in writings and other things like that, something happened around 300 AD. The Christian church started to implement many of the old legalistic rules that we found in Judaism or what I'll call the temple model, and those were brought back into Christianity, not because the disciples or Jesus wanted it to happen, but a lot of it was probably just because of the uh, Roman Empire and, and the, um, uh, the ruling class at the time. So the temple model is a model that existed before Christ, and, and this is the hypocrisy of it. It grants extraordinary power to sacred men in sacred places who then determine the meaning of sacred texts and they tell followers how to live and worship God. So essentially it's this, this you know, you can't have a direct conversation with God. You have to go through some sacred man who has sacred wisdom and knowledge at a sacred place. That's what the temple model essentially is. So the obvious flaw in this system is our own human fallibility and the corruption of the system it entails because um, the, you know, the best of men are men at best and, be and men are going to fail. Um, Jesus himself, if you look throughout his teachings, he cursed the hip hip hypocritical Pharisees and the temple model of his day. In Matthew 23, 27, he wrote, um, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So even Jesus re rejected and didn't like this model. Uh, but somehow... 
despite, you know, Jesus cursing this and the early disciples, a lot of, you know, if you look at Paul, there was explicit instructions trying to keep this temple model out of Christianity. Ultimately, somewhere along the line in Christianity, men twisted Christ's message and used religion for their own devices for hundreds of, year, hundreds of years. And this is why we had things, I honestly believe, like the Crusades, uh, the Inquisition, um, I mean, you even had a, a, a portion of history where um, the King of England was in charge of the Roman Catholic Church, um, and, and he was putting in rules that had absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. It was more about his power and solidifying his power. But all these legalistic rules were added for you know conform conformity and to give power to the few, like you know King James, for example. So this was once my view of God faith and church and ultimately why I left. So I went to church for some 20 years and I mostly heard a list of do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that, do that. You know, it was all behavior modification type of stuff. Act a certain way, look a certain way. Um, you know, if you didn't fit in our, our, what we considered a good Christian, we weren't gonna, you know, allow you in our group and basically look down on those who sin or don't have the same beliefs as us, as our group. Now, of course, it's not, you know, if you don't, it's not always explicitly said but that's the perception you get. And if you spend some time around um, some Christians, that comes out. Um, and it's sadly. Um, I know not everyone has had this same ex church experience. I know there's some great churches out there. I've been a part of some really great churches. But I also know that I'm not the only one who has had this same experience with church or Christians because I hear people every day tell me the story that, you know, they insert their own, own details, but they'll basically say how they were either hurt or had a painful experience by uh, people from inside the church. So my question is, how did we get so far off the mark? So for hundreds of years, um, hundreds of years we relied on this temple model of basically sacred men in sacred places who read sacred texts, and then they told us how to live and, and how to worship God. But something amazing happened around 1530. William Tinsdale translated the Bible into the common language, which was English. And uh, for the first time, he encouraged followers to read the messages and the teachings of Jesus for uh, for ourselves. Now, how do you think the church reacted to that? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, Tyndale was convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation, after which his body was burnt at the stake. You know, all for empowering the people to be able to read the Bible for themselves. Why? Because he was threatening the power of the temple model. Now, despite Tyndale's efforts, almost 500 years later, most Christians today are assimilated into the church. Um, you know, you, you show up on, on Sunday, you listen to the pastor's message, but you rarely, you know, a lot of Christians don't even pick up the Bible and read it for themselves, you know, uh, say Monday through Saturday. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not saying that's all Christianity. There are a lot of great churches out there who are, who are Bible focused and they're doing a great job today in teaching people the scriptures. But I think we often miss the most basic message of Christ. So, if you want to look at this, so the arrival and sacrifice of Jesus, and this is, you know, uh, along the lines of talking about atheism, a lot of times atheists love to pull out the Old Testament. And I say, okay, well, let me let me explain to you what Jesus was. And this is this goes along with this. The arrival and sacrifice of Jesus signaled the end of the old temple model and the start of something new. So essentially, the, 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 the Old Testament, and again, I'm not a biblical scholar, but this is my interpretation of it. The Old Testament was a history of God's people, the Jewish people at that time going through it. And, and they followed the temple model. Okay, but Jesus shows up and he throws out the temple model. Jesus raised the standards so high that no one could meet them except through him. So the temple model used to be like, okay, if you sinned, you know, you'd go to uh, the temple and you'd give a, you know, a burnt offering or you'd sacrifice uh, an animal or something like that. And, and that, and then you were good. It was like, you know, paying a penance and now I can go back and sin again. But Jesus came and, and he raised the standards so high. He said, no, I don't care what you do. No one can, you're never going to meet these standards. So the temple model is essentially a you-centered approach to faith. It's like, my faith is all about me and I can do what I want. And then I just got to go pay a pittance or, or, you know, pay off the, the church. And then I can go back to doing what it's all about me, me, me. And the heart of the temple model is the question. This is really good. I love this. This is, this is really the heart of what, what temple is, temple model is. What must I do or believe to make things and keep things right between me and God? So it's kind of like, you know, a bill collector. How much how much money can I give him just to keep him off my back? And that's that's kind of the temple model relationship with God. It's based a lot of times on personal works and adherence to rules rather than faith and trust in God and works through the fruit of the Spirit. Now, now Jesus came to show us that we should be other-oriented, Christ-centered, 
you know, upward and outward focus, not inward towards ourselves. And this was a total rejection of this temple model. Everything Christ taught us about love and truth, um, he taught compassion without compromising truth. He loved and showed mercy and grace to the sinner, but he hated sin and called us to turn away from it. So it was this balance of both truth and grace that we see in Christ in all times. Now, when the early the, the early church struggled with this very issue, if you look, uh, Paul got really angry at the people who were trying to insert temple model practices into the new Christian church. Um, he wrote to the church at, at, at uh, uh, Galatia, he said, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love, Galatians 5, 6. And he's basically saying that, you know, they were going back and forth and they were talking about this. Okay, if you want to be a Christian, you have to kind of convert to Judaism and then convert to Christianity. And, and they were trying to emplace a lot of these, the old temple model practices from Judaism into Christianity. And Paul keeps correcting them over and over again. He says, no, no, no. And they're trying to, you know, talking about which laws do we have to uphold? And, and essentially this is what he said. He says, forget everything else. If you miss this one thing you've missed the entire point okay he's saying the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love okay so uh, go back to you look at your modern slogan love con you know love conquers hate and all these bumper stickers you see well guess what that's exactly what jesus was saying that's exactly what you know the early christian church stood for little do people know um it, instead of engaging in hundreds of rules for behavior modification and sacrifices for repentance, which is which is simply how to get more out of God for less obedience, less of our obedience, if you think about it, um, with the Christ-centered model, we need to demonstrate authentic, um, you know, and authentic faith and love for God, and illustrate our love to God by radical service uh, for other people. Okay, which is in turn obedience to God. So it's a very I'm 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 loving God and I'm doing that through radically serving God and His people um, through love through love. That's what we're talking about here. So so trying to maintain the old temple model is no longer necessary, and it works ferociously against living, walking with, and serving Christ. So I believe that my own struggles with faith and ultimately why I became an atheist was because I was raised in churches who unintentionally uh, were keeping kind of what the temple model was. And I don't believe there's churches out there that still do this. And I don't necessarily think they're trying to, it's just, it's just, you know, whatever it's their culture, it's their history. Um, and, and they've kind of hung on to this temple model. Now, once I broke free from this and I, I finally, you know, as an atheist, when I decided, okay, let me. Let me take another look at Christianity. I started to read and research the Bible for myself. Um, I personally had, you know, felt the power of God's grace and love of my own life. Everything changed. My attitude towards other changed. Um, and, and it ultimately boiled down to this. The message is so simple. Love God and love others. Okay. You can debate all the other whatever in the Bible you want, but that's the essential message of Jesus. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. Christians get so caught up in these theological debates. And, and it, it infuriates me that... Christians, we spend a majority of our time arguing amongst each other than, you know, um, going out and doing good for, for God's kingdom and glorifying God. Uh, it's more like we want to, um, you know, glorify ourselves through our theological, you know, intelligence than anything else. But we get so caught up in these theological debates and the political debates, and oftentimes we end up, you know, looking down at others, and, and we forget Christ's most basic message, um, and let me give this to you. This is uh, from John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's love. You know, read Bob, Bob Goff's great book, Love Does. Um, it, it, that's what it's about. It's about love. Imagine a world. Just, just think about this for a second. Imagine a world where people were still skeptical of Christians because of what we believe, but they were envious of us because of how we treated and loved others. If that was the story of the Christian church, if we were just so loving and we were working in the communities and we were outpouring and we were helping social causes and we were doing all the things that we should be doing as Christians, imagine what that world would look like. Um, so that's, that's essentially temple motto. Now, let me explain to you I wanted to talk about this in part two here is how I basically went from atheism back to Christianity. And and this was for me, I, I just kind of highlighted a little bit. At first for me, 
I, I had a change of heart, but then it, it led me on an intellectual journey. And, and this is hard because I think that faith is not, and a lot of people want to, they want to look at faith or Christianity, like it's an academic class that you go and you study and you do research on. And, um, and for some people, that's the process it's, there's an intellectual side of it, but faith is much more than in just this intellectual curiosity, this intellectual study of faith. If that's all it was, I mean, Christianity would have faded away a long time ago. So there's a big difference in between spirituality that involves love, grace, acceptance of others and relationships, you know, and, and, and then religion and religion typically involves rules and dogma and rituals and legalism. Um, so many people jump to conclusions or make, you know, generalizations that if, if you're a Christian or you're faith-based, you're automatically super religious and legalistic. Um, and, and I don't believe that's so. So, you know, we, with Legacy Dads, one of the reasons why I, I followed a Judeo-Christian kind of form of parenting is that we believe that faith-based parenting is by far the best form of parenting available. Um, you know, so so I go through this thing. Again, I'm not, you know, I'm not a, some seminary trained guy, um, but I try to, you know, read the Bible and discern it for the best of my interest and do some research on it. Um, and, I, and I believe that the Christian... Uh, baseline of morals and values and ethics and character traits when properly when you properly understand it and discern it in the biblical and historical context are far superior to any other um, you know ethical approach out there and we, I talked about this in part one that you know you had atheist nations who were supposedly going to be the cutting edge of science and advance everything well um, you know why 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 did they you know Soviet Union killed 60 million people um, you know, under, under atheist rule. So, uh, you, you need to question these things. Um, modern ethical systems, a lot of them are based, a lot of them try to base themselves on Christianity, but then leave God out. But there's, there's, um, you, you need to look at these comments. And I, we, I totally believe the Christian, uh, baseline of morals and values is, is superior. So, let me start off by saying this is if you're listening to this the first time, if you just found us on the top 10 and you're like, who is this guy? First off, I'm not a hypocritical conservative right wing fanatic. Okay. I am, uh, I'm spiritual and, and, you know, but I'm not closed minded and I don't blindly just follow religious dogma. I am more critical of the Christian church as a believer, um, because I think we need to do better. So I constantly argue with, you know, organized religion and I'm often, you know, and, and, and some people can argue like, am I, am I hurting the cause? Am I helping the cause? Well, I think I'm, I'm trying to challenge us to be better. And I, I often, you know, end up criticizing some of the things we do in Christianity, mostly around, I believe that we're being far too judgmental and hypocritical and rigid in accepting others and their beliefs. Um, so Please, I would say that don't don't lump me in. I'm not one of those fanatics. I'm not a fundy or whatever you want to call me. Um, and and I, I, I say a disclaimer. I'm like, I'm not some uneducated hypocrite. Um, I'll tell you right now, a majority of my friends, the people I work with are atheists or they're non-faith practicing. And, and some are even homosexual, uh, shockingly. Wow. Uh, many Christians are, are, they tend to be, you know, overzealous fans, not true followers of their faith. And if they actually read their Bible, they would see in, in ways that, uh, that Jesus acts towards others is there's, there's a balance of, of truth and grace. What I talked about, Jesus felt pity and grace for the sinner, but hated sin. Okay. So that means that I don't go up to somebody who's committing a sin and say, well, you're such a despicable person. Well, guess what? I did the same thing. I'm a sinner myself. So why don't we point the finger? You know, if, before I point fingers at other people, I need to be pointing fingers at myself because I am just as guilty and I'm just, I fall just as short and I need to worry about my own home and my own business before I start going around telling other people how they should uh, handle their business. So why do, you know, why do we believe in God here at Legacy Dads or what brought me back? So, you know, like, like I said in the part one, um, you know, I was, I was raised in a church, forced to go and listen to sermons on guilt and repentance and often, you know, chastised by hypocritical clergy. And, um, you know, and, and some of the people that I, I grew up with were, you know, you look at, and you can look at the news today. Um, they live lives no better than a common criminal. Um, you know, if you're, I don't, I don't care what political party you represent, or if you're a church deacon or who you are, if, if you're committing a crime, you're a criminal and, and you need to be punished for that. 
So, you know, you see this hypocrisy where people would, you know, they'd, they'd preach on Sunday um, or they'd show up to church on Sunday and then they, you know, were fornicating and doing whatever Monday through Saturday, weren't really living a Christian life. It, you know, church attendance and faith became just a checklist uh, for something to do on Sunday. So much of my faith early on was basically memorizing uh, scripture and, and nothing wrong with that, but it was, it was focused on head knowledge and dogma rather than on actual exploration of faith or relational and, and logical discussions on faith. So if I went through all this, most people say, once they come to this realization, they say, I'm done with it. I'm not, I'm not going to do this anymore. But you know, I have, I've been on both sides of the coin now. I was first somebody kind of forcibly raised in the church and required to you know, memorize, wrote verse and prayers, but not, but not necessarily believing all the dogma. And then second, I, I, I was a complete atheist denouncing and criticizing God and all those who, all those who believed in him, uh, much like Paul. Um, but uh, finally I became kind of this complete sellout for Jesus and more so into actually living, you know, trying to live a Christian life every day rather than just empty words and judgmental attitudes. So I said that, you know, I often criticize followers of, of Christianity because I believe we need to shut our mouths and let our actions speak louder. Rather than criticize, condemn, and judge people, we need to offer more help, love, grace, and an olive branch to build bridges with those who are different than us. So what what's changed? What's changed in me? So first, um, you know, I, I, I did some extensive research on both sides of the arguments for and against Christianity. And I listened to these arguments for and against it. You know, I read I read Dawkins and I studied Darwin and I I, I listened to guys like Sam Harris who are um, you know uh, very very staunch atheists. Um, and and you know I, I can call myself I'm a thinking Christian. I I, I, I struggle with these concepts and I, I I don't shy away from them. So it, it, really, this this is I just I, I'm actually I actually research the faith I believe in. I don't just simply you know, follow blindly the teachings of the religions. I actually do some research into this to, to look at the authenticity. So, um, I, I, what I did when I started coming back to Christianity is I went and I looked at the best evidence and translations of his teachings, uh, of Christianity from scholars and non-Christian sources. So if you've, if uh, most Christians, I, I honestly believe this, they've never researched the historical, uh, anthropological and scientific accuracy of some of the teachings of Christianity. Um, and I think we need to do that as Christians. You need to understand what it is you believe and why why things are the way they are. So why does faith and religion get such a bad rap then with, with non-believers? Well, I think many times we shoot the messenger, okay? And what I mean by that is, are there bad people within religion and Christianity? Absolutely. I talk with them every day and I even fall into that category myself from time to time. Uh, talk with me before I've had my coffee in the morning. I'm not a nice person. Um, are there are there bad leaders and clergy in, in religion? Absolutely. We know that. The, you know, it's it's a fallible system of man and, and that's men are going to fall short and women are going to fall short. Um, are there people that claim to be holier than thou? Uh, you know, in the public eye, but then behind closed doors, they're they're completely opposite. Absolutely, um, you know, I I totally believe that. Other people throughout history who have used religion and people's beliefs as a way to control and extort and abuse power. Absolutely, you know, we talked about this: the Crusades, the Inquisitions, Catholic priest scandals. All these things come to mind. So, but what I have found is I often we we run into religious people who are passionate about their faith, but they don't have this kind of apologetics or scientific or historical knowledge to back up some of the claims and beliefs with logical, educated people. So my own, and my own church upbringing didn't teach this to me. And unless you actually go about seeking this, you're not, most, most people aren't going to have this. Um, but, but these people don't have, you know, they don't understand the historical accuracy of Jesus, the archaeological evidence, and and why the Bible is written the way it was, all these different things. Therefore, many Christians can come off as fanatics to those who are not believers, and even those of us who are believers. So believe me, there are some fanatics in Christianity. Um, I've, I've heard quite a few of my fellow Christians, <clears throat> excuse me, make some absolutely crazy comments. You know, uh, the, the bullhorn preacher guy that's screaming about hell and damnation um you know i don't think you're i, I asked the one guy there was there was a, a, a you know one of these street preacher guys one day and he was out there and he was telling everybody they're gonna go to hell and you're all damned and you're gonna and i asked him i'm like how many are you bringing anybody to christ are you is anybody buying what you're believing and he's like well it's not it's not about the numbers and i said well just get, have you converted anybody by preaching this hate 
And he wouldn't answer the question because he knew he, he hadn't converted anybody. He hadn't won anybody to his side by preaching this message of hell and damnation. Now, is there hell and damnation? Absolutely there is. But do I think you smash people in the face with that or beat people over the head with the Bible on it? No. Um, so like I said previously, I think there's a lot of fans of Christianity, people who buy into Christianity, they go to church every week, slap a fish sticker on their car, but then they proceed, they, they, they act the exact opposite from the ways that Jesus and Christianity teaches. And, and I think we all fall into that category at, at sometimes. And, and one of the things was, is I think I, one of the things that legacy dads, we, we espouse is trying to strive to be followers, not fans of faith. Now you're never you're never going to be completely there, but you you want to strive to be more like a you know a a follower of Christ, not this fan. So you look at you know some of these documentaries out there, like Bill Maher did, uh, uh, Religious and stuff like that, and those target and interview they go after these fanatics because uh, the whole aim of the documentary is to show how ridiculous organized religion and and its followers are. So, you know, these documentaries and the opponents of Christianity almost never take the time to interview someone knowledgeable on Christianity or biblical history. They're never going to, you know, go interview a, a Josh or Sean McDowell, or they're not going to interview a Ravi Zacharias or somebody like that, or Lee Strobel or anybody, because they know that they're going to, you know, it's not going to paint the narrative they're trying to paint. So they don't do interviews with those. They they prey on the, you know, the the people who don't have the background and just seem ludicrous. Um, and that's what the picture they're trying to paint. Picture they're trying to paint. Uh, I'm really excited today. I'm having a hard time talking. I apologize. So <laughs> in, instead, you know, yeah, they go around and they interview these less informed and they and they poke fun at their beliefs because it serves their purpose and it shows that Christians are non-thinking, anti-science, cult followers, you know. So what is truly important though here is, as I would say, it's it's not about the messengers, it's the message, okay? Um, and, and that's what it is, is oftentimes you're going to have people that, that get the message wrong. I'm, I mean, I'm, look at me, I'm struggling today and, and try to get this thing out on, on this podcast. So I, I would say, don't shoot me the messenger, listen to the message, go listen to the message for yourself. I mean, think about this politicians in this country, they misrepresent my constitutional rights every single day in Washington. Um, some of the things that politicians do, I would be arrested for if I did those things. If you or I did those things, we'd be arrested for. But that doesn't mean I pack everything up and leave the U.S. over it, okay? And, and so the same thing as goes with religion. Just because there's some bad apples in, in Christianity doesn't mean I'm going to pack up and, and go to the atheist side. So the, the Bible clearly states that man is sinful and evil and will do destructive things. So this should be expected from those of us who are trying to follow the teachings of, of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, we're all born with a sinful and evil nature, and it's it's not developed by our upbringing nor our environment. Well, uh, so this is, I'm, I'm going into the nature-nurture argument. I will say there's, there's it can go both ways. There probably, there's a nature and a nurture influence, but, um, you know, my, my I did a, a previous podcast on how my wife shocks other moms, and one of the things she talks about, she she's been working in earlyhood child education and cognitive development for only twenty over twenty years, and 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 it's basically like you know one of the things she looked at is if you know you, you the you know people will say children are born pure and it's the environment that um you know that that corrupts them. Okay, well you know l- let me ask you this: if you have children. Did you ever teach your kids to hit others, to be possessive of objects, to not play well with others? So I know I didn't teach my children that. I didn't sit down and say, okay, here's, here's how you, when, when, you know, uh, when your sister takes your toy, here's how to hit her in the head with it, with it. I never taught my kids that they learned that. And they didn't learn that by watching me in my home or watching TV because at that age there, there was none of that going on. No, children act this way naturally from birth. Now, that's what we would call in Christianity sin. You're born sinful. But here's on the opposite side of the spectrum. I did have to teach my kids love. I had to teach them how to share. I had to teach them how to have empathy towards others. So these traits weren't inherent in my kids. Okay, so I think it's both the nature and the nurture argument going on here. But I definitely think we're not born pure and, and, you know, the system corrupts us along the way. So, you know, oftentimes I think that, you know, much like the game of telephone, if you ever played that, everyone hears and interprets it, they interpret the message of faith differently. And therefore, the teachings sometimes get blurred and miscommunicated, especially by overexcited fans of Christianity. So uh, what I say over and over again is we don't need more religion, rules, and dogma. We simply need a relationship with God by faith in Jesus Christ and actually following the examples of Jesus Christ. Now, 
my atheist friends will say, well, God and religion has caused all the wars and destructions in the world. Well, no, it hasn't actually. Man has in the name of God in, in most times. And that's just sin. So that wasn't God doing these things. That was man, again, misrepresenting God's teachings. And many men have caused destruction and death in the name of God. I, I totally agree with you on that. But God's a generous God, and he also has a sense of humor. And, that, and with that sense of humor, he gives us an ability to choose. Sometimes man makes the wrong choice, okay? Sometimes man gets the message mixed up and then tries to communicate things in the name of God. That's called legalism. That's called when, when man tries to add things to uh, God's teachings and says, well, this is, you know, it's, it's probably a good idea that we add this. Well, no, that's legalism. That's adding things that aren't in there. However, Je if you look at Jesus' message, his message was love, peace, grace, and acceptance. Okay. But again, uh, he didn't tolerate sin. He loved the sinner, but didn't tolerate sin. So this is, this is a key, you know, this is a key to faith, I believe. And, and I would tell you this, don't take my word for it. Don't take your pastor's word for it or your mom's, you know, go and study this for yourself. Um, now my atheist friends will say, well, 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 the, the Bible is fictitious and inaccurate. Okay. So there are many books written by unbiased and non-Christian scholars that answer this question with scientific and historical accuracy. However, most people don't take the time to research the accuracy of the Bible. Furthermore, some of the best evidence on the historical accuracy of the Bible gets written in the world of academia and never makes a bestseller list, okay? Most of the books you see on the bestseller list are written by the fringes of society, okay? So for example, if a Iranian American that's a Muslim writes a book on Christianity, do you think there's a little bit of bias there uh, when he writes this? Now, he may have, you know, a, he may have a scholarly background and, you know, a degree in, in world religions or whatever, you know, he has, but there's some bias in there. So you have to take a look at that. And most of the top cutting edge research on the, uh, on the accuracy of the Bible doesn't happen, uh, you know, you can't find it on Amazon. You have to go look into academic and scholarly peer-reviewed uh, reports to find this. So, um, however, that's where you find these things. And, and then the most accurate historically, um, you know, these studies are often, they're, they're the most moderate of views using peer reviewed evidence from both believers and skeptics alike. That's what I look at. So here, I'm going to give you a quick summarized version of the historical scholars, what they believe, what they have found, the evidence, and this is peer reviewed evidence in academic circles from both Christians and non-Christians. Okay. And, and some of the techniques they use, if you want to look into this, there's, there's techniques called the uh, criterion for multiple attestation and other ways that they look at, okay, um, when, when a, a biblical scholar told me this, he's like, when I look at a text from, say, the New Testament, I don't look at it as, well, this is the Bible and I have to treat it like the Bible. No, I just look at it as it's a historical document, just like any other historical document I would ever look at. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to base my, there's going to be no bias there. I'm just going to look at it and treat it like a historical document. So... That in mind, here's here's a couple ways I'll, I'll talk to you about this. So the Bible was originally not a book, for those of you surprised if you didn't know that, um, as we see it today, but it was it was a number of historical texts, letters, and writings. All these texts weren't made into the book as we know it until about 325 AD. So this is historically known. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the probably the best accounts we have of Jesus Christ, they were all written within 30 to 35 years of Jesus' death and are eyewitness accounts of the life and events of Jesus Christ. These accounts have been proven to be historically accurate based on a number of criteria, including eyewitness accounts by women. Remember I talked before, women were not allowed to even give testimony um, in the first century. Therefore, the fact that they, this was included in the gospel, this would have actually hurt the case for the writers of the gospel unless, unless they were more concerned with accuracy over creating some following or trying to convince people, okay? So the Gospels also contain many stories of Jesus humiliating and rebuking the very writers of the text. How many times did Peter get rebuked and got called out by God? Um, you, you wouldn't, if you're writing this great, you know, uh, I'm gonna write a book about my autobiography, I would leave that part out where Jesus called me a, a, a moron in front of everybody. Um, and, and when scholars look at all these things, um, they believe this further shows the careful detail in recording the accuracy over making the writers appear greater influential, okay? So what you're seeing is you're seeing the good, the bad, and the ugly in the early uh, writing of, of the church, okay? So it, the, the fact that they put these things in there was, was very, very um, 
telling of what was going on at the time. Plus, if you ever read the New Testament, there's they, there's these random people that get mentioned, right? And and most of the time when you're reading it, you're like, okay, well, who is this guy? Well, it doesn't matter in, in you know 2018 or 17, it doesn't matter to us. But guess what? When that was written, that person that they mentioned was still alive and he might have been your neighbor. And that means what what could happen is you could go down to that guy's house and be like, hey, are you serious? Did you see Jesus alive after they crucified him on the cross? Are you just are you, are you messing with me here? So you could actually go talk to that guy and he would tell you his eyewitness testimony. Yeah, I saw, you know, I saw Jesus was risen from the dead, whatever. That's why those things are included in the Bible. Most people don't, 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 don't catch those things, but those are some of the, the clues we have to the authenticity. Okay. So let me, let, let me hit a, another couple things here. So at this time in history, you have to remember, you have to put, you have to conceptualize the culture and the time period we're looking at. Back then, less than 15% of the population was literate in the first century. Okay. Oral tradition, or, you know, basically telling stories orally and memorizing things, that was the dominant means of conveying information and retaining accuracy. Many of our modern memorization techniques that we have, or, or mnemonics, were all developed during this time because uh, that's just how how you know um, messages were conveyed. Not a, because everybody didn't write or read. Oral tradition, you know, was the way that you shared information. Oral tradition has been scientifically proven to be historically accurate by anthropologists in preserving the actual truth of eyewitness accounts for up to 200 years, two generations after an event took place. So let's say, okay, whatever, people don't live to be 100. Let's say 150 years, okay? So for at least 150 years, anthropologists have proven that oral tradition keeps you know, accuracy within, uh, within the stories that are told. So the entire new Testament was written all within 150 years. It was all written in within that time. And we all, we have documented evidence of that. Okay. In the first century AD, uh, this is another, another, uh, another thing you have to think of in the first century AD, religious teachings and stories were not allowed to be changed or crafted to make things more believable or extravagant. So you couldn't, you couldn't, um, you know, just, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to change this little detail in the story because it's going to make it a better story. Right. If you look at Jewish Pharisees of the day, they weren't even, they're not allowed to, they weren't allowed to speak publicly until they accurately memorized the entire stories of, of Judaism, you know, and because what tend to happen is people would get together in a house or they'd get together in a forum and religious stories were shared orally in public, you know, and, and you know, and, and if someone ever tried to change the story a little bit and make, I'm going to put in, you know, and then a, a snake fell out of the sky and bit me or what, you know, whatever it is, if people tried to change the account to make it, you know, uh, a little bit more, uh, a better story, these stories were actually self-corrected by the people listening and the eyewitnesses because, most of these people, they'd known these stories. They'd heard them over and over again. There were eyewitnesses still alive that if they tried, somebody tried to say something, they'd be like, ah, no, that's not the way it happened, bud. You're lying. Um, and plus, you have to remember this. Minor blasphemy, minor blasphemy, meaning saying anything that could possibly be you know, derogatory towards God or Judaism back in those days was punishable by death. What did the, what did the Sanhedrin and the, and the, uh, Pharisees try to get, that's one of the reasons they tried to get Jesus executed because they said he was blaspheming. Um, so you have to think of this in context of the time. Okay. So the fact this, this is also what I talked a little bit about, but the fact that the four gospels contain minor differences, but retain all the same parables, key facts and stories further proves that all four books of the, you know, I'll just talk the gospels here were written independently by each author and that there was no collusion or crafting of the text. So many of the authors of the New Testament were in other parts of the world at the time and did not have access to the writings of the other gospel writers. So it's not like they all, they, they all got in a room and said, okay, you're going to write your book and I'm going to write my book and then we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check it and make sure we're all saying the same thing. That's not how it worked. They were written at different times in different places. Now, um, I know there's evidence out there that some of the writings were available. Um, and I believe I, I, I apologize. I can't remember off head, but I think it's, you know, some of the writers had access to some of Paul's writings or something like that. But so there is an understanding of that. But if you look at, uh, most of them didn't. And, and this again, you know, is a solidification of the criterion for multiple, multiple attestation. Okay. Um, plus on top of this, I think you see that non-Christian authors who were alive. So these are people outside Christianity, outside of the faith. We have historical evidence of them writing about Jesus during that time and his follower. They wrote about Jesus and his followers 
And they speak of his miracles and deeds. You got people like Josephus and uh, Plutarch and Silius, uh, uh, Epicus and uh, Epicetus, I'm sorry. Um, there, there was a bunch of people that wrote about him. Now, they didn't say it was the son of God. They were like, yeah, there was this, this Jewish rebel guy and he, whatever, his followers went around and they said he was the Messiah and we crucified him on the cross. That maybe, but they're writing about him. And the fact that they're writing about him shows that he actually existed and they, some of these things did actually happen. Some of the most, um, I, I talked about this at the end of, of part one, but I think um, this is a big telling sign for me too. So the writers of the New Testament were in many instances, they were martyrs for their faith. So their prolific writings exist as a, his, as a historical source. Now, why would eyewitnesses and observers die for something that was fiction? You know, these, these writers, they took the subversive action of writing to women and slaves rather than simply pandering only to, only to men. And that, like I said before, that wouldn't have heart, that, that would have not made their, their writings popular at all. That would have been against the culture at the time. It'd be like being a, a white racist nationalist in America today and you're trying to go around talking about, you know, your your beliefs. People would reject it. And and that's what essentially some of the, the writings of the New Testament were doing. They were saying, no, God, you know, this is for women, this is for slaves, this is for Jews and Gentiles. And it, it wouldn't have been, it would not have been popular, Okay. And the crazy thing is that, so the writers of the New Testament, the, the early church, the early disciples, they did almost everything wrong according to the culture of their time to try to create some following. So this gives further evidence, I think, of the writer's quest for, rather they're looking for truth and accuracy rather than popularity or creating a large following. You know, almost every single, um, you know, disciple or early church follower was, uh, they were chased, they were persecuted, they were beaten, they were in prison, they were tortured, and most of them were killed, okay? You wouldn't do that for some made-up story. That's just in my mind, okay? So let's look at some of the other, you know, crazy things that are out there. Agnostic, the, the Agnostic Gospels, and um, some of the other um, historical texts that are out there. So the Agnostic Gospels, are, and, and a number of other texts about Jesus existed, and were not, they weren't included in the Bible, but there are these other writings out there, um, historical writings. And it's, it wasn't some, you know, nefarious intent, uh, you know, like in, in Da Vinci Code or something like that. It wasn't some nefarious intent, but rather scholars during that time determined that these texts were written, um, during the third century, 300 years, they were outside the what could be considered accurate um, for uh, for oral tradition, and the funny thing is, if you look at some of the early church writings, even church leaders, so that we're talking, you're talking a hundred years after Christ died. There's some church leaders that say, "I am not, I'm, I'm not in this. This writing is not inspired by God. It's not inspired. You know, I'm not one of the early like the early disciples. I'm just writing my. This is my commentary on it. So they actually distinguish that. You know, I'm not this. This shouldn't be included in the Bible, and you see that in some of the early uh, writers. So, um, you know, these the Gnostic Gospels are basically seen as not credible, historical, or accurate portrayals of of the stories found in the New Testament because they're outside of the uh, timeline that they would consider accurate. So, scholars, you know, to this day, they've examined these texts and they've found they've come to the same conclusions on this. So, sorry, you know, Dan Brown and the Da Vinci Code. I, I loved it. It was a great fictional book, but it, it's not accurate. And even that goes to the, the, some of their other predecessors like Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and the woman with the alabaster jar. They all kind of highlight the same thing. Um, so let's look uh, accuracy in numbers. Okay. Most ancient writings are considered accurate because they have numerous, we have numerous texts available written during very varying times where by varying people and cultures, and they all confirm the same information. So you look at some of the stories we have on Plato and Caesar, Aristotle, Homer. Um, so those examples there, we have between uh, with some of those, only seven, only seven texts that talk about people. Um, but some of these up to 640 ancient texts confirming the accuracy and teachings. So also all these texts have been dated between 500 to 1400 years after the events takes, takes place. But the crazy thing is nobody's debating the authenticity. Nobody's saying that Plato or Caesar or Aristotle or Homer never existed. Uh, you don't hear anybody arguing for that. Yet some of the, you know, we, we have very little historic we have less historical documentation for those people than we do for jesus christ so the new testament has over 5600 ancient texts confirming its accuracy and with the recent discoveries of things like the uh the codex uh viticanus and the codex um uh syndicate i can't even say it synaticus uh, um 
these these translations they've been dated within about 70 years of the death of Jesus which further confirms the accuracy in, in, in the current New Testament so there's also tons and tons of archaeological discoveries that prove the Bible we have today is the same translation of text that, that Christians had within 30 to 50 years of the death of Jesus. Okay. Um, the crazy thing is, is if you look at anthropology, there's been so much anthropological evidence that things that talk, that were talked about in the Bible have been dug up now. And the more, again, I talked about this in, in the first session. Um, the more science advances, the more we're finding that, uh, our scientific community is able to say, oh, wow, remember that story in the Bible? Well, we found that city and we dug it up and here's the actual things that we found. Um, so it's it's really, it's an amazing thing. Um, here's one I just talked about with a friend the other day on Facebook. So uh, this is the argument that Jesus is just an amalgam of other pagan religions or Jesus is just a, you know, it's, it's a Egyptian mythology being reborn. Okay. So I've I've heard this recently that Jesus was this amalgam of earlier mythical figures and that many of his attributes can be derived from earlier heroes of Greek or Persian antiquity, such as uh, Mithras or uh, Horus is another one. Well, a lot of this is it's funny because these are internet historians. Um, and, and so they'll do a Google search and then, oh, look, somebody on the internet wrote about this. So it's got to be, it's scholarly evidence, right? So internet historians will point out that Mithras predated Jesus by about 1400 years, that he was born on December 25th to a virgin in a cave, and he offered eternal life by spilling his blood, and he was buried in a tomb and rose again three days later. So, And that he said, oh, they also have a quote from him saying that um, he shall not eat of my body nor drink of my blood. Uh, so that he may be one with me and I will be met with him, shall not be saved. So essentially they're saying, oh, he's, he's, he's talking the same things as Jesus said. Um, and then if you look at this and say, well, that was 1400 years before Jesus. So obviously Jesus is a contradiction to that or the same thing with Horus. Um, but the, the point they leave out is that there was actually two Mithras in history, one Persian and one Roman. The earliest record of a narrative about the Roman Mithras, which one to talk about about Jesus, is dated to at least 100 years after the manuscripts of the New Testament. So the only specific mention of a uh, of uh, um, um, Mithras offered uh, offer to eternal life, you know, basically saying that he was like Jesus and offered eternal life, was a piece of writing dated to about 280. Okay, scholars now believe that much of the Mithras story um, really came from Christianity in an effort to merge the traditions for greater popularity in the early. In the, so it was actually the other way around this Mithras tradition, um, followed more, it, it followed Jesus. So, um, and, and that, that's, that's, you know, I'm not going to get into all these, but there's, you know, there's, uh, Zoroast I can't even say things, Zoroastrianism and, and, uh, Horus and all these types of things out there, um, that, that you need to research. And this is one of the things I, I, I posted this to my friend who bought this up who brought this up to me on Facebook recently. So the theory, did, there was a theory out there. And this is, this happens over and over again. It's happened numerous times. People want to debunk Christianity. And, and then this specific story comes largely from a, a 1903 work by a Belgian scholar named Franz Cumont. Uh, however, the idea that Jesus is an amalgam of various figures actually derives from a largely now discredited and abandoned, uh, it's in German, I'm not even gonna try to say it, but basically like the history of religions. Um, religious, well, I, I can't speak German. I'm sorry. I could speak two languages, but not German. Uh, but it's a history of religions. And uh, <laughs> I apologize to any Germans listen. Um, but this movement was basically much, it was the it was in vogue and it was the great thing during the 19th century. But it, it essentially depended largely on lacking or overlooking uh, accurate dating of manuscripts. And now, based on, again, modern science, we know that this, uh, these are not, uh, because of the dating's absent, they've been peer reviewed by scholarship again, and now they're, 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 they're thought to be, it's not, it's not historically accurate. So modern historians won't use this history of religions, but guess what? Somebody on the internet will do a Google search and find history of religions. But, oh, look, this is a scholarly article and I'm going to use this as a way to debunk Christianity. Well, no, sorry. Um, uh, so the, this is another telling piece of this. The Old Testament was written from 1400 to 400 BC and foretold of Jesus. Okay, perhaps some of the most convincing evidence lays in the Old Testament if you look at it, or what the you know Jewish will call the Tanakh. Uh, 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, a small village near Jerusalem. Skeptical as anyone might be, I'm not. I'm 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 not sure anyone can conjure up the exact place they're going to be born. 
Now, atheists would say, well, you can't prove Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Okay, well, okay, I wasn't there. I'm sorry, I can't. I have to go off the historically accurate, you know, uh, evidence I have. But the the Tanakh, the Jewish Tanakh, uh, Tanakh, I'm sorry, for all, I can't speak Hebrew either, um, also contains prophecies that the Messiah would be crucified, that his garments would be divided up by casting lots, and that he'd be given wine mixed with um, with gall or myrrh, um, and that he would cry out, before being forsaken and that none of his bones would be broken okay so this is spoken of in psalms and zachariah and most notably in isaiah um uh and this is a key fact i think this is a key fact because all of these were written hundreds of years before the roman occupation so let's just throw out throw out you know whatever you christianity new testament these were written hundreds of years before the roman occupation of israel and the use of crucifixion as a means of death so you had basically prophet you know prophets from the old testament talking about crucifixion before anybody even knew what crucifixion was and these were hundreds of years before the roman uh, occupation of israel okay um so in all let's I'll, i'm going to be a skeptic here okay there's people that'll that'll you know throw out some of the messianic prophecies from the tonic that jesus fulfilled i'm just going to say eight Let's just say Jesus fulfilled eight of the messianic prophecies, and there, uh, mo modern historians will say there's a lot more. But uh, let's just say Jesus fulfilled, you know, he, it kind of lined up, you know, eight of the messianic prophecies, okay? So there's a guy named Dr. Peter Stoner, yep, Stoner, mm -hmm, did the statistics and the probabilities of one man fulfilling just eight of the Tanic prophecies, okay? To answer the question, to answer this question, what is the probability of one man fulfilling all eight prophecies? So Dr. Stoner used the principle of probability. So here, let me give you some reference for this. Here's some, some statistics from Dr. Stoner. So the chance that you're going to be struck by lightning in a year is about 1 in 700,000. The chance of being killed by lightning is about 1 in 2 million. Your chance of becoming president is about 1 in 10 million. Um, the chance of a meteorite landing on your house is about 1 and I don't even 180 trillion, I think. Um, now, what's the chance that you'll eventually die? Well, that's one in one, and you're probably going to die, so sorry there. But therefore, to determine the probability that one man, Jesus Christ, could f fulfill all eight, all eight prophecies, um, it it's essentially, uh, I can't even... I can't even say this number. It's like one chance in, I'll give it to you, 10, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, Okay, this is, this is math. Does that seem like a random coincidence to you? Does that seem like that could just happen, you know, randomly? I could keep going guys but here's the point and and i you know if it, you're atheists listen to this you're going to try to go debunk everything and argue everything i say but most people don't go to the distance to research their actual faith and its accuracy or like me when i became an atheist i only researched my side of the coin i didn't bother you know looking at the other side um and and most people, you know, use these fringe accounts rather than looking at unbiased peer-reviewed evidence and scholarship. So furthermore, some of the some people take their past negative experiences with faith or people claiming to be Christian and simply apply a generalization that all faith, all sects, all churches, all everybody in Christianity is bad and then uh, that's a, that's an, it's basically a, a way to justify their anger and concerns or experiences so this would be like me saying that you know well hey i went to a mexican restaurant one time and i got food poisoning so i'm never going to eat in a restaurant again does that make any sense no um so please understand I'm, I'm not trying to debate history or people's beliefs and i don't i'm not trying to say to do this debate of of uh, uh atheism versus christianity because that's not what I'm, I'm just trying to tell you my story but Here's the here's the oldest thing. Now, atheists will love to say this, or skeptics love to say this. Can you 100% scientifically and mathematically prove Jesus existed? No, because here's why. So I cannot I can't prove the existence of any of my ancestors. Okay, uh, I don't have DNA evidence of my you know great 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 grandfather that came to the United States. But what I can prove, however, is I can document their existence. But I can't prove it with 100% scientific and mathematical fact, okay? The, the ability to unequivocally prove or disprove anyone's existence throughout history is based primarily upon the surviving information. It's historical accuracy and our ability to interpret that information, okay? So we have to look at the, whatever we have, the historical records we have is really all we can use to determine its authenticity. What I believe is that 
um, the information I've researched is the most accurate and historically available. I realize that some people simply will not believe in God unless God came down and touched them on the shoulder during a reality show on primetime television. Then most people probably still wouldn't believe it. Um, but even then, they would still probably, you know, they would, they would have some reason why this didn't, this isn't true. So this is plain and, this is my plain and simple, and I'm going to wrap this thing up for you guys. Um, I'm a Christian today because I have faith. And part of this, it, there, there comes a point where you have to, you know, realize that you can't just, it's not intellectual. There's, there's an element of faith to this. But I do, I have done the research and I believe that I see clear and convincing evidence that Christianity is accurate. It's, it's within the context it's most accurate with, that it can be in its teaching and text. I believe that living my life by a set of defined morals and values taught by, in the example of Jesus Christ, including love, peace, patience, kindness, grace, acceptance, those types of things are further, or they're far superior to making up my own ethical system or following some other ethical system or having some corrupt politician dictate to me uh, the way I should live my life based on, based on their political leanings and aspirations. Um, I tried, as an atheist, I tried to live my life by my own set of morals, values, and principles. Um, and, uh, I failed, I failed doing it and I wasn't a very good person. I was an angry person. I was a, I would lash out against Christians and I just didn't like the person who I was then. My faith now, it, it, my, my faith doesn't impose upon my lifestyle. It's not a burden for me to, to have faith and to worship and go to church on Sunday. Um, if you ask those around me, you ask my wife or my kids, my faith's made me a better husband, a better father, a better coworker, and a better citizen in the United States. Okay. I don't believe that making up my own rules on morality or living a hedonistic lifestyle was healthy or intelligent. Um, however, what I had to learn, I had to learn to be humble. I had to learn to submit my will. I had to learn to put my faith uh, in something other than myself. And that was a big hard step for me. I'm a very type A personality. I like to, you know, believe in I can do anything on my own. Um, and, and the reality was it wasn't. And God illustrated that in many ways. So my opinion, uh, some people fear having a spiritual faith-based relationship because if they, if they choose to believe, then you can no longer do all the destructive things in your life in good conscience. And rather than change our ways, we continue to deny the existence and sometimes fight against those who believe because we're scared. We don't want to change. Plus, I said, you know, with my struggle, I had to admit life, life, you know, my, my life was just more, it, it was my personal slice of happiness and fortune. That's all I cared about. Um, but, you know, that, that was my experience. And I'm a much better person because I chose to change, believe, and find a true relationship with Jesus Christ. I know a lot of people who've left religion because they felt, you know, lost and hurt and confused and empty. But I've met very few, maybe none, who have an authentic relationship with Christ who have not f uh, filled those lost, hurt, and confused and empty feelings with God's grace and love. Okay. Um, it's not about a building. It's not about money in an offering plate. It's not about hypocritical rules. It's about trusting God, healing our wounds and emptiness, and discovering how truly great we can be uh, as people by letting God's love shine through our lives. Okay, so most of, and one of the biggest things is I enjoy my faith now. Okay, it wasn't always true. When, it, when faith was forced on me, uh, it was not a good experience. But like I said, if 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 you've ever had a bad experience, like if you've ever taken your car to a mechanic and you didn't get good service, um, you don't stop fixing your car. You go find a better mechanic, right? So if you had a bad experience with a church, I would I would tell you to go try a different church, try a few different churches. Um, ultimately, it comes down to this though. Faith is just that. It's faith. At some point, you have to look at all the evidence and you have to make a choice. It, you're never, you have to take that leap of faith as we call it. You know, since making this choice personally, I've had numerous things happen in my life and they've happened positively because of my faith. I did not have that when I was an atheist, okay? So if you're an atheist listening to this, you're a non-practicing Christian, hey, guess what? You're not alone. I always to be one, so are most of my friends. Um, and I'm not, I, I don't mean to, I wasn't trying to patronize you or, or argue with you at all. Um, you know, and, and, and please understand, I was trying to say this is my personal journey. I tried your way and it didn't work for me. I wasn't a very good person. I wasn't an ethical and moral person. Now, you know, hey, maybe if I became an atheist again, I could figure it out, but it didn't work for me. So, you know, plain and simple, you know, this is this is really what, um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll tell you this. It's not just Christianity. So I've, I've, I've been involved in Christianity. I've lived and worked in Muslim countries. I have very good Muslim friends. I've I spent time, I spent time in, a, in with Buddhist monks in a country, and I, I have high respect for Buddhi, for, for Buddhists, um, but I don't ascribe to their faith. Okay, so I, and I personally feel though that we can all live together. 
Okay. We can, you know, slap the bumper sticker coexist. I believe that. Now, am I going to ascribe to your beliefs? Probably not. Um, but uh, I do believe we can all live together. Um, no. So bottom line, you know, I'm not a guru. I don't have anything to sell you. I'm not looking for to create a, a fan club or, or to support, you know, for you to support my cause. That's not why I'm, I'm talking about this. Basically, I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to use the gifts God gave me to share with others and help parents and men who are in need. I think our, our society is increasingly becoming more hostile, more divided, more complex. And not only us, but our children are suffering in numerous ways because of, because of this. Um, I think I want to, we should cut through our petty differences um, and find common ground to build on and focus on raising moral, ethical leaders who will turn our communities, our schools, our churches, our businesses, and our worlds around. That is the bottom line. Um, so guys, I want to thank you so much for tuning in to these, these, these last two episodes on uh, when I was an atheist. I'm sorry I cannot cover every single argument or debate, um, and we just don't have the time for it. But I, I appreciate you uh, tuning in and listening to this, and I will uh, ask you to listen again next time. Please subscribe again. Thanks for making us a top 10 um, most listened to podcasts in the Christianity um, category. We really appreciate that, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Legacy Dads Podcast with Lance and Dante, real men, authentic faith. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit LegacyDads.org and on Facebook.com slash Legacy Dads and on Twitter at Legacy underscore Dad. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe and we'll catch you next time on the Legacy Dads Podcast, real men, authentic faith.